Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. In 1849, a whaling ship called the Amazon put ashore in Tahiti. It had been built in Aparima, Riverton, and was captained by 40-year-old Englishman John Howe. Howe had run away to sea when he was 12 and had been operating out of Aotearoa and Australia for half his life. His ship was mostly crewed by his Māori in-laws. Howe had married two Māori women, first Kuhihuhi of Ngāti Māmoi and then after her death, Kurunaki of Ngaitahu. Howell and his crew found Tahiti in an uproar. Gold had been discovered across the Pacific in California, and the locals asked desperately if Howell would take them to San Francisco to join the gold rush. At first, Howell wasn't interested. He wanted to go back home. But then his Ngāti Māmoi and Ngaitahu rallies talked him round. They were keen to see the wider world and find out why people were so excited about California. So the Amazon sailed off. When they arrived, Captain Hal and his Māori in-laws joined in with the frantic diggers. And one day, as they washed the gravel through their pan, there it was. Gold. John Hal was speechless. But his Māori relatives just shrugged. They asked why they'd sailed thousands of miles to find gold in California when the same stuff could be found in the rivers back home in Aotearoa. John Howell asked his relatives where to find the gold, but they refused to tell him. Maybe they were worried about bringing home the chaos they'd seen in California. But within 12 years, the secret was out. And one of the world's most significant gold rushes began right here in New Zealand. Ko mani Dunlop Ko William Ray tēnei. No mai whakarongo mai ki te Aotearoa History Show. Smoke bombs have been thrown on to Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament. And no more land to be sold. There are three main ingredients you need for a gold rush. Geology, culture and capitalism. First, geology. Because you can't have a gold rush, obviously, without the gold. Yeah. And gold mostly exists as tiny little specks of metal locked up inside quartz rock. To extract that gold, you usually need expensive heavy equipment. But in a handful of special places, nature does a lot of the work for us. Over thousands of years, quartz gets broken down by wind and rain and washed into rivers and streams. 
The rivers jumble the rocks around, break the quartz apart. It releases the tiny specks of gold into the water. Some of these specks fuse together, becoming bigger flakes and nuggets. Eventually, the gold settles on the riverbed, just waiting for someone to find it. Mostly we're talking about tiny little bits of gold, but sometimes you get very large nuggets. Yeah, like in 1952, a Ngāti Māmoi Ngaitahu chief called Rakiraki told Pākehā gold seekers that he once picked up a nugget the size of a potato from a local river. Then he chucked it straight back in the water. That's because the second ingredient you need for a gold rush is a culture that values gold, and Māori didn't. Traditionally, Māori didn't see gold as valuable. Our precious mineral was pounamu, and it still is. So there weren't any gold rushes in Aotearoa until Europeans turned up. And actually, there weren't really gold rushes anywhere in the world until the 19th century. That's because the final ingredient you need for a proper gold rush is, you guessed it, capitalism. For most of world history, gold mining was controlled by powerful aristocrats. The people who did the digging were usually either slaves or indentured labourers. But with the rise of capitalism, it became possible for ordinary people to mine and sell gold themselves, provided they had the resources, or the capital, to get it. The place where all these ingredients came together for the first time was the United States in 1848. When gold was first discovered in the rivers of California, it was promoted by none other than US President James Polk in an address to Congress. The accounts of the abundance of gold in that territory are such an extraordinary character as would scarcely command belief were they not corroborated by the authentic reports of officers in the public service. What happened next set the template for pretty much every other gold rush of the 19th century, including in Aotearoa. Thousands of people rushed into the wilderness in the hope of making their fortune, often without any experience in mining or surviving outdoors. At the time, California was barely inhabited by Europeans, and without police or courts, diggers came up with their own rough and ready rules that became known as diggers' law. The bonds between diggers could be extremely strong, but they could be vicious to those they saw as outsiders, like local Native American tribes and Chinese diggers. The next big gold rush after California was in Victoria, Australia. Authorities tried to clamp down on the chaos there using heavy taxes and strict policing. But that sparked fierce resistance from diggers, including the famous Eureka Rebellion in 1845, where at least 27 people were killed. Despite the chaos, gold fever quickly spread to Aotearoa. Poor colonists and more than a few Māori saw a chance for wealth and flooded over to Australia and California. Others started wondering what lay beneath the ground here. But when the first small gold discoveries were announced in New Zealand during the 1850s, not everyone was delighted. Some rangatira opposed gold mining. They worried the discovery of gold in Aotearoa would only increase Pākehā hunger for Māori land. And they had an unlikely ally, rich Pākehā landowners, especially the big sheep farmers known as wool lords or sheep barons. I love those names. You might be thinking, wouldn't these sheep barons just get richer if gold was found on their land? Well, no. The thing is, under British law, gold is a royal metal. That means no matter where you find it, 
it belongs to the Crown. So the last thing the sheep barons wanted was their property seized by the government and turned into a goldfield. So they did their best to block the search for gold in New Zealand. For a while, the government went along with this. After all, many politicians in this era were sheep barons themselves. But there were also arguments in favour of gold mining. For one thing, the government of this era were keen to promote more migration to Aotearoa, and the discovery of gold would be a major drawcard. So, eventually, provincial governments stopped blocking prospectors and started offering rewards for the discovery of profitable gold fields. The first major discovery was in 1861. In June of that year, Gabriel Reed, a veteran of the Californian and Victorian goldfields, wrote a letter to a local official. This letter was like a starting gun being fired in the race for gold in Aotearoa. It was later published in the Otago Witness. I take the liberty of troubling you with a short report on the result of a gold prospecting tour. In one place, for ten hours' work with pan and butcher's knife, I was enabled to collect about seven ounces of gold. To put that in modern terms, Gabriel Reed dug up about $17,000 worth of gold in a single day. The spot where Gabriel was digging is just outside what's now the town of Lawrence in central Otago. It was given the name Gabriel's Gully. Although Gabriel wasn't the first person to dig for gold at this gully, that was a shepherd called Edward Peters. He's thought to have been from Mumbai and might have dug for gold in California before coming to Aotearoa. Gabriel Reed followed up on Edward Peters' discovery and was the first to promote the field more widely. In any case, the Otago gold rush was on. Three weeks later, the Otago witness reported, Gold, gold, gold is the universal subject of conversation. The fever is running to such a height that if it continues, there will be scarcely a man left in town. The rush quickly spread beyond Gabriel's Gully as gold was found in valleys and streams all over Otago and in Southland, Marlborough and on the west coast. Settlements sprung up, sometimes on or near pre-existing kainga Māori. Digger camps formed the foundations for many towns which are still around today. Queenstown, Arrowtown, Cromwell, Westport, Greymouth, Hokitika, and the list goes on and on, although they all probably had better Māori names, but anyway. <laughs> Sorry. People swarmed the South Island looking for gold. 19th century population stats are notoriously inaccurate, but what figures we do have suggest the Pākehā population of New Zealand more than doubled in 10 years, and many of those migrants came chasing gold. This was one of the biggest influxes of people in New Zealand history, and it solidified Aotearoa as a Pākehā-dominated country. would-be gold diggers actually played a role in the New Zealand wars. Hundreds signed up to join the colonial militia to fight in exchange for promises of land. So, who were the diggers? Well, they weren't the poorest of the poor. Those in extreme poverty couldn't afford to get to the gold fields in the first place. But they weren't usually all that rich either. Adventuring upper-class men often tried digging, only to find they weren't cut out for the grinding labour. Those poor little soft hands. Most successful diggers were small farmers or sailors or skilled craftsmen like carpenters or masons. These were people with a bit of cash to get them started and who were used to working outdoors. Many seized gold digging as a chance to escape waged labour and work for themselves. 
and while they all hoped to strike it rich, most had realistic expectations. One traveller said this about the gold seekers in California. Some are young men from the country who are bound to the mines in hopes of gathering sufficient of the gold dust to enable them to return home and buy a farm. Others are broken down storekeepers or mechanics who find that there is little or no prospect of saving enough for a rainy day and are bound for California in hope of amassing enough to make the future look more comfortable. Where did the first waves of diggers come from? Well, all over the world, but mostly England, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Scandinavia, Scotland and the United States. Māori were extensively involved in Otago's rushes too. All the major southern Ngaitahu chiefs took part. And some modern linguists actually think the distinctive New Zealand accent and dialect first evolved from all those cultures mixing on the goldfields. And how old were the diggers? Well, most were pretty young. Boys in their teens and young men in their 20s. They grew their hair and beards long and almost never washed. On the Otago goldfields, they dressed flamboyantly in high boots, tight velvet trousers and loose shirts, often dyed red, pale yellow or blue. They accessorised with silk, sashes, gold rings and watch chains. As the Otago witness explained, fashion was a way of signalling your success. You can tell the good claims from the general appearance of the men working them. They are well-dressed, wearing their silk and sashes and gold chains while at work. Diggers sang and shouted to each other as they worked, and when someone struck gold, they celebrated wildly. A digger called George Holmes said this about the moment his mate got a lucky find at Moak Creek near Queenstown. I thought he'd gone crazy. He seized the basin and ran round and round with it, pretty nigh delirious with joy. We'll never know how much gold was extracted by these boys and men. Official yields peaked in 1863 at almost 18,000 kilos, but gold was also smuggled out of the country secretly to avoid taxes. Digging wasn't all fun and games. It was hard work and brutal conditions, knee-deep in freezing cold rivers, choking on dust and tormented by blood-sucking sandflies. Many diggers lost their lives, and a lot of it was down to really bad timing. Yeah, like in the summer of 1863, the rivers ran low and diggers pitched tents close to the water. But in July, disaster struck. Here's how historian Stephen Eldred Grigg described it in his book, Diggers, Hatters and Whores. Cold cloudbursts drove down for six days. Shingle and mud crashed into the gorges and staunched rivers with rough rubble dams behind which floodwaters began banking up quickly. Storms dumped still more downpours. Overnight, the dams burst. Waves like walls up to six metres from trough to crest came slamming down the valleys. A British digger called Bob was sleeping in his tent beside his friend Bill as the water came crashing down. I realised our situation at once and caught Bill by the shoulders and shook him. He only muttered something about Sister Mary. I felt the water rising on my legs. It was not a moment to lose. Bob dragged his mate out of bed and made a run for it. But when he looked behind, Bill had vanished. His body was later found 70 kilometres downriver. I thought of poor young Bill, so happy and merry, carried away by that horrid, rapid river. I could not restrain my tears.
Bill was one of maybe a hundred diggers killed by the 1863 floods. Hundreds more drowned in the years that followed. In fact, drowning was so common in early colonial New Zealand, it became known as the New Zealand Death. It wasn't the only thing that killed diggers, though. Some froze to death in the harsh southern winters. Some were buried alive when hastily dug pits and tunnels collapsed. Some caught diseases, which could run rampant in the unsanitary mining camps. Some slipped and fell to their deaths negotiating narrow mountain tracks. And some were murdered. New Zealand goldfields usually weren't as lawless as those in the United States, but some diggers were killed for their riches. Our most infamous outlaw were the Burgess Gang, named after their leader Richard Burgess. History writer Wayne Martin estimates Burgess may have been responsible for robbing and killing more than 20 people in New Zealand. The Burgess gang were caught in 1865 after murdering five men on the Mangatapu track near Nelson. All but one of the gang were hanged for their crimes. The lone survivor was Joseph Sullivan, who testified against the rest of the gang to save his own skin. In such harsh conditions, the gold diggers clubbed together, living in small groups, usually two to seven men. The phrase at the time was that they went mates. And of course, Kiwis and Australians still call each other mates. Much of that tradition of close, blokey friendship was born on the gold fields. And these sometimes became sexual relationships too. There were only a handful of female Pākehā diggers, most of them working alongside their husbands, but thousands more working women followed men out into the goldfields. As Stephen Eldred Grigg writes, those women were looking for exactly the same thing as the men, wealth and freedom. A woman on the goldfield could make very good money. Her scarcity value was so high during the first year or two that a slipshod, slatternly, stockingless, insolent servant woman, moaned a diggings newspaper, could pocket two to three pounds a week as wages besides her keep. Women filled all kinds of roles. Merchants, hotel keepers, washerwomen, sex workers. Young women were always in demand by pubs as dancers and barmaids to encourage the men to buy drinks. For women, life on the goldfields could be an exciting escape from the drudgery of factory work, domestic service or marriage. But, just like gold digging, it was risky. Some women made money, but only a minority got rich from their shops, brothels and pubs. Same went for the men. Most diggers never found enough gold to make their fortune. Not that it stopped people looking. No, and they weren't just looking in Otago. Gold was found in the north of the South Island in the mid-1850s, enough to earn the area the name Golden Bay, but not so much that it drew more than 2,000 miners. Quite a few of those Golden Bay diggers were Māori. They worked differently than Pākehā. Instead of going mates in small groups of men, they often worked collectively as a whānau or hapū. The stronger shoveling, the nimble-fingered washing gravel through pans, and the rest cooking and cleaning back at camp. Some Māori diggers worked their way south along the west coast, the site of the next big gold rush in Aotearoa. But the discovery that triggered the west coast gold rush was down to a group of Māori who weren't looking for gold at all. In February 1864, four Māori were hunting for Pounamu along Pohonu Creek. They were Iwi Kautiaika, Ihaia Tainui and Irihāpiti Pātahi of Ngaitahu, plus Irihāpiti's husband, Haimona Tuakau of Ngāti Kahungonu. They found a large Pounamu boulder, and when they lifted it up, the sand underneath was sparkling with gold. 
When news made it to Otago, diggers flooded west. Many were drowned in shipwrecks on the rugged coastline, or frozen to death hiking through the Southern Alps, or starved to death when they ran out of supplies. But lots made it. And that sparked intense demand for Māori land near the site of the diggings. Pōtini Ngaitahu ended up losing a fair chunk of their land to squatters and government agents. Mm. The boom on the west coast was also bad news for many Pākehā and Otago. Gold had made the province insanely wealthy, supporting shopkeepers, craftsmen and hospitality workers. As the diggers went west, their customers vanished. But they were replaced by a new wave of diggers many of them Chinese. Chinese diggers were encouraged in part by the Dunedin Chamber of Commerce, which asked Chinese merchants in Melbourne to help promote the Otago goldfields. The merchants agreed, but only so long as Chinese diggers were promised equal treatment under the law, protection from violence, and not subjected to extra taxes. Chinese diggers were a huge part of the gold rush in California and Australia too. Most came from Guangdong province in southern China. Just like the European diggers, they usually came from families that were neither rich nor very poor. But unlike the European diggers, they often came to Aotearoa with substantial support from their community. Yeah, families and clans often pooled resources to send men to the goldfields, on the condition they send a chunk of their winnings home to support the community. We don't know for sure how many Chinese diggers came to Aotearoa, but at least 8,000 arrived in Otago and thousands more went to the west coast. They were often very successful. Whereas Pākehā usually worked in groups of two to seven, Chinese diggers operated in larger crews, typically 40 to 50 people. Many had experience working with water to irrigate farmland back home. They put this expertise to work on the goldfields, building dams, blasting away with water cannons and dredging on floating platforms. This allowed them to reach gold which the small crews of European diggers had been unable to reach. One of their most ambitious projects was to divert a channel of the biggest river in the South Island, Mata'o, the Clutha, so they could mine the riverbed. Every year they piled up rocks to redirect its flow, and every year their efforts were destroyed by flooding. But to the astonishment of Pākehā witnesses, they kept at it, as one correspondent for the Tuapika Times wrote in 1895. These Chinese diggers are above all plucky, and incapable either of admitting failure, bowing to difficulties, or sitting down to hard luck. They are, above all things, stickers, and are, besides, very ingenious or resourceful in work of this kind. But Chinese immigrants also copped plenty of abuse. They were often harangued in the street and occasionally assaulted by young thugs, and sometimes by women in Māori too. Chinese people were also excluded from some colonial settlements. For example, they were forbidden from living in the town of Lawrence and had to set up camp on the outskirts. And the discrimination got worse over time. A prominent anti-Chinese politician was Richard Seddon, who became a local body politician towards the end of the gold rush in the 1870s and rose to become premier in 1893. He was eventually our longest-serving prime minister. Seddon set a lot of the groundwork for New Zealand's modern welfare state. He'd been a digger himself on the west coast, Ngatai Pōtini, and his working-class sympathies made him a champion of poorer Pākehā. But he also won support through vicious anti-Chinese speeches and policies. By the time Seddon made it to Parliament, gold was running thin, and economic depression had hit. 
And while some had welcomed Chinese miners as a boost to the economy, many Pākehā now feared competition from Chinese people for jobs and business, especially as Chinese people left the gold fields to set up shops and market gardens. Unashamedly anti-Chinese groups such as the Anti-Chinese Association and the Anti-Asiatic League gained traction. Many Pākehā opposed such prejudice. But in 1881, Parliament had the numbers to pass the Chinese Immigrants Act. This required Chinese migrants to pay a £10 poll tax and meant ships could only carry one Chinese person per 10 tonnes of cargo. In 1896, those barriers were raised to one Chinese person per 200 tonnes and a £100 tax. That's about $20,000 in today's money. More barriers were soon added. Chinese alone were banned from becoming British citizens and required to pass English language tests before entering the country. These policies formed the bones of what became known as a white New Zealand policy. It was outlined bluntly by Prime Minister William Massey in 1921 when he spoke out against Chinese migration, saying, Nature intended New Zealand to be a white man's country, and it must be kept as such. Bluntly is putting it nicely. The Chinese poll tax was only removed in 1944, with Deputy Prime Minister Walter Nash calling it a blot on our legislation. The New Zealand government officially apologised for it in 2002. But stigma against Chinese people as outsiders is still a thing in Aotearoa. As Race Relations Commissioner Ming Foon wrote in 2020, Despite being in Aotearoa for more than 150 years, Chinese continue to be racially profiled as perpetual migrants. The last major hunt for gold happened in Tetara Otika Amawi, the Coromandel Peninsula. Coromandel had been a focus for gold prospectors on and off since the 1850s, but the hype never really paid out. As one visitor from the West Coast wrote, There are some very good claims, but where there's one good claim, there are 50 that never see a speck. Frustrated diggers often assumed the next valley over must be full of gold, if only local Māori would let them look. But Marutuahu, the confederated tribes of Coromandel, were reluctant to open up more land to diggers. And even when individual Māori consented, the Hapu didn't always accept that decision. Yeah, like in early 1867, Mere Kurute Katsi, a rangatira of Ngāti Tamatera, led about 20 other women to drive Pākehā surveyors out of Ohinemuri. She also threatened to throw the Māori man who sold the land into the river. Baals. The government stepped in. In 1870, the native minister, Donald Maclean, urged Rangatira to allow gold extraction in Ohinemuri, saying, What good do you derive from the gold underground, which neither you nor your ancestors ever dreamed of? Let your relatives derive benefit from the treasures which lie hidden in their land. But a high-ranking chief, Tehira Tetsuiri, the brother of Mere Kurutekatsi, still refused, as he said... There is evil in Hauraki. Of what is the use of the land after it is broken? When land is broken, the owner perishes. Eventually, the government had its way, and the Coromandel was opened up to mining. It turned out there was plenty of gold, but virtually all of it was locked up in rock and could only be extracted using massive stamping batteries. That made mining settlements in what's now Thames pretty unpleasant, as Stephen Aldred Gregg notes. The field was deafening. 
693 stampers were pounding away. The rock was crushed around the clock, night and day. Smokestacks belched black soot into the sky. This heavy equipment was expensive, which meant Coromandel mining was quickly dominated by corporations rather than plucky individuals or informal partnerships. Increasingly, gold diggers gave up on looking for gold themselves, and many worked for these companies for wages. But they didn't lose the pioneers' bolshy attitude. Miners played a central role in the early labour movement. They formed some of our first unions and participated in some of our most famous industrial disputes, like the 1908 Black Ball Coal Miners' Strike and the 1912 Waihee Gold Miners' Strike. The Waihee dispute lasted eight months and became increasingly violent. Armed non-union workers, police and strikers fought at the miners' hall, leaving unionist Fred Evans dead. By the late 19th century, the New Zealand gold rush was over, but it was transformative. Many colonial settlements benefited from the gold rush financially. Dunedin's oldest and grandest buildings were built with money from the gold rush, and mining's still a big part of the Otago, West Coast and Coromandel economies. In just a couple of decades, it significantly boosted the colonial population. Politically, those hordes of rowdy diggers shifted the balance of power away from the aristocratic sheep barons towards the working-class colonists, solidifying some of the egalitarian ideals in New Zealand's national identity. They also changed the physical landscape. You can still see the marks left from gold digging all over the South Island. Huge tracks of shingle tailings dumped by gold dredges on the west coast, the ruins of old Chinese miners' huts in Narrowtown, and massive stamping batteries in the Coromandel. And many Pākehā, myself included, can trace our first ancestors in Aotearoa to the thousands of people who came here in that wild hunt for gold. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Hooliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
presents the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.